Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Kids, adults, fans of all ages, this podcast episode contains spoilers for the Star Wars prequels, uh, various Clone Wars animated show episodes, uh, various Thor arcs from the comics, although we don't spoil them heavy, but we do give details from them. We're careful not to spoil them heavy because we think it's great if you go back and read those. And we're giving you a lot of theories for Obi-Wan Kenobi and uh, Thor Love and Thunder in particular. And if any of those are right, number one, we told you. Number two, they might be spoilers, so take those with a grain of salt. But hopefully they won't be. But hopefully we are also right. My name is Jason Concepcion, and I am at approximately 98% of full health. And welcome to X-Ray Vision, the cricket podcast, where we dive deep into your favorite shows, movies, comics, and pop culture. Today, on today's episode, on Previously On, we're going to talk about a bunch of news, including uh, an announcement of a new Daredevil show on Disney+, Plus. Kathleen Kennedy's recent comments about uh, her helming the Star Wars IP, plus a primer and watch list on Obi-Wan Kenobi, which drops uh, the day this podcast comes out, which means we have not been able to see it because we didn't get screeners. Nobody did. In the airlock, we'll be diving deep into uh, everything that we see in the new Thor and Love and Thunder trailer uh, and a primer on a bunch of uh, cosmic deities from Marvel that we think are going to be germane to this particular conversation. And of course, if you want to jump around, check out the, the timestamps and the show notes. Uh, that Those will help you with that. And joining me now is the best, the greatest, the number one, the smartest the most wise, the number one comics encyclopedia <laughs> in the world. Our co-host, Rosie Knight. Rosie, how are you? How are you feeling? I'm I'm feeling so much better. I'm I'm still I feel like I'm still recovering, but I'm I'm feeling better. It's nice to see you here with both of us not in the in the throes of a of a <laughs> yeah, that pandemic. Was, <laughs> that was very bad. Uh I too feel like better for sure. There's some lingering. Mm -hmm. Like I, it now during the middle of the day, I will just need to take like an hour and a half nap. Yep. Like my head will become like so heavy, and my eyelids will feel like they're made of lead, and I'll just need to sleep. And I've got this uh, cough that won't go away, but I do feel better. It's great uh, that you're feeling better as well. I would advise everyone out here to wear a mask and not yes. get this version of the of the novel coronavirus COVID-19. Don't do it. Yeah, I feel you. I, I literally I've been sleeping every day till like 1030. I just can't oh God, stop. My too. body's like, I'm just you're sleeping, babe. Like if you want to get I, ready, I, you're sleeping. I wake <laughs> and up. I wake up to my alarm and I'm just like, I did not get any sleep. And then at night when I'm going to sleep, I'm like, 
turn everything off right now. I need to go to sleep immediately, <laughs> right this moment. And then I need to drink like two cups of coffee to like jumpstart the engine. Um, hopefully this ends soon, but, um, but we're better. Thank you everyone for your kind words. And yes, concern. thank you. Um, we're better and we're back. Let's get into the news. New Daredevil show. Uh, according to Variety, there is a new Daredevil series moving forward at Disney Plus, uh, with Variety having exclusively learned from sources that Matt Corman and Chris Ord uh, are attached to write and EP. Um, uh, basically, what we have to say about this is we were right. We, we were right. <laughs> we, were, we knew we it. We were right. <laughs> it's nice Listen, to be okay. right. It's nice to be right. Not all of our predictions are correct. In in particular, we we're predicting that uh, we're gonna see we're gonna see Matt Murdock in She Hulk, and I think that listen, that's not confirmed, but I'm almost sure now that we're gonna see mm-hmm. him in She Hulk, uh, and we're right. We were right that uh, that uh, that this series was gonna happen. Uh, no news on uh, whether the rest of the, the cast, uh, most notably Vincent D'Onofrio as Kingpin, is also going to appear. But we can s- certainly yeah. assume that that that's going to happen. And for those of you, I've had a lot of people being like, "Oh man, I hope they don't, I hope they don't Disneyfy the tone." You know, the Netflix series was so violent and dark and gritty, and like I don't want them to to ruin it. I think a good, I think a good roadmap for how they're going to treat it is. Uh, Kingpin's appearance in Hawkeye, yeah. right? Like all of a sudden he showed up. He was wearing, uh, he was wearing comics uh, uh, accurate uh, wardrobe, and he's taking like RPG projectiles mm-hmm. like to the chest, and they're bouncing off his big uh, Kingpin belly in the in the uh, super fun Marvel style. And he's uh, and I think that that's what we're gonna we're gonna see more comic booky level action, despite the fact that he is a street-level hero. That's a guess. What are your thoughts on this? No, I think you're right. I think that we'll see... I think we're going to see Karen and Foggy come back. I think that Disney is aware of how beloved these characters are. And I think it's less that they're going to disney anything and more that they're going to find a way to fit them into this space, which, like you said, I mean, that show still ended with Kingpin with a gun to his head yeah. and somebody getting shot. Like, there is a yeah. level of darkness, as many people liked about Moon Knight, that was very brutal. There was a real tone shift there so i don't think they're going to be afraid to deal with dark stuff but i think like you said that violence is going to be more comic booky like we might see a matt who spends less time shirtless and bruised on the couch of beautiful women which was one of the best things about the netflix show but more of a more of a like super powered matt yeah. doing his thing you know it means in great relief for me that we likely will not see the Karen storyline that is really famous from the Frank Miller stuff, which is just really great. Yeah. Uh, I think that we're going to do a streamlined version of these characters that fits into Disney plus world, especially She-Hulk, I think is going to basically kind of be like what we think Echo is also going to act as, which is a way to bring these two worlds together. The big question is, will that also translate for someone like Jessica Jones? Great question. Um, and with the She-Hulk of it all, uh, She-Hulk in the comics being such a close ally of mm-hmm. of Hellcat and Hellcat, of course, making your debut in Jessica Jones. Will, will we get some of those characters as well? I'll say this. Here's an, another thing that I think um, is emerging from these suite of Disney plus Marvel shows that are, that are coming out is I think that 
Disney Plus is where you're going to get, you know, the the Marvel Comics version of New York City. Yes. Where it's uh, superheroes walking down the street all the time and you can run into Doctor Strange at the coffee shop and, uh, you know, uh, Matt Murdock is your neighborhood lawyer. Mm -hmm. All of that stuff, I think, is what they're building out at Disney Plus. Uh, And I'm basing that in part from... Uh, having watched the first uh, two episodes of Miss Marvel, that feels mm-hmm. very much like the kind of tone is like yeah. um, the New York City, the New York metro area. This is where all your superheroes live. Yeah, I think that's really true. And I think that that tone of that comic book feeling that there's so many superheroes that you could just bump into them is something they're going to be putting into this phase because when they were shooting Ant-Man in San Pedro, which obviously that's not going to be set in New York, but the scene that they were shooting was him at a coffee shop walking down the street like to jaunty music and everyone's like looking at him and waving at him (laughs) and saying hi. So I think that what we're going to see in the next phase, which could be really interesting, especially because we know what has to happen before the X-Men come in, I think we might see a kind of acceptance of superheroes first, where you get this generation yep. of Kate, of Kamala, these kids who grew up with the heroes who see them as these celebrities and who yeah, ha- feel sure. a closeness to them and, and and feel like they're not that far away from being able to be them. And then we will likely see something terrible happen once that has been established that will change the way people see superheroes. Uh, up next, huge Anthony Bresnikan feature uh, in Vanity Fair on Star Wars and Disney Plus's Star Wars properties. A big cover feature, beautiful, uh, sumptuous uh, cover of the issue. Uh, this is the June issue of Vanity Fair, uh, and it's a really it's a great article. You can read it online if you wish. Um, not a lot there, obviously, in terms of. Details, but a lot of good color and feel uh, from the people involved about their particular excitement of being part of this and also, you know, the the kind of hoops you have to go through in order to maintain the secrecy of mm-hmm. this. Um, but I, th- I think the, uh, the comments that the part of the article that made the most impact on the Internet were uh, um, comments by uh, Lucasfilm president Kathleen Kennedy about her experiences uh, making solo and recasting characters. She says, in part, there should be moments along the way where you learn things. Now it does seem so abundantly clear that we can't do that. That being recasting uh, characters. This seeming to suggest that um, we're going to see a lot more of of deep faking classic legacy Star Wars characters if they should happen to appear in future Star Wars shows and or Star Wars features, you know, think uh, the season finale of of The Mandalorian and the the most recent season where we saw uh, Mark Hamill's uh, face uh, from the Return of the Jedi days. Uh, grafted onto another actor's body. Your thoughts on this, Rosie? This is in, an interesting, as as our producer Chris said, um, pretty interesting considering that the recasting <laughs> of Obi-Wan for the prequels was is one of the most lauded and now just simply accepted recasts maybe in the history of movies, you know? Uh, yeah, I think it's a... I'm a, I'm actually like a big fan of Kathleen Kennedy in general yeah. and the choices I, that same. she's made and a lot. Of, this to me felt like an odd 
statement, when you're talking about it in the context of a show which features a character who was so popular when you recast him that you can now do a spin-off show 20 years later, and that yeah. is Ewan McGregor's Obi-Wan Kenobi. I am an avowed believer that there are actually a ton of great stories that could be told with recast characters. I'm a huge fan of the Star Wars books. Uh, I was a big Expanded Universe fan before, and before that became, you know, Legends. And I yeah. love the new stuff. And they're especially like Claudia Gray writes these really brilliant books about Star Wars. And, and there's a wonderful book called Leia, Princess of Alderaan about teenage Princess Leia. And she's going on this kind of, she has to complete this series of challenges to, before she can take on the role of princess. And that sh- to me is just like, I would love to see a teenager in that role making that show. And so this is kind of like, Obama to me, but I also yeah. understand where it comes from. I also think that in the case of Solo, one, a movie I actually think is quite fun and I think Alden did a great job. And But the truth is nobody needed to see a young Han Solo movie because that already existed in the original movies. So I think it's more of a problem of that specific movie and the specific notion of making that story than it actually being about people's responses to, to recasting. Like, to me... I, I, I would love to see who they'd cast as Luke Skywalker same, if they wanted same. to see him in The Mandalorian. You know, that same. to me is it actually, to me it's exciting to imagine new people taking on those roles. But I know that's not how all fans feel. And I feel like, I feel like it's interesting and controversial because I feel like generally the deep fake stuff is not beloved. As, as good it's, as it can get, I, I feel like there's not a great contingent of fans who are like, wow, that's so cool. Yeah, it's one of those things where it, it, no matter how good it is, and it is pretty good at yeah. times, uh, even even really good at times, there's never a moment, at least for me, where it doesn't take you out of it a little bit. It's uncanny it, valley. Yeah, it, it just something about the way the light hits the skin or whatever it is just feels... It feels weird, uh, in particular now that they're using the volume, the kind of like mm-hmm. uh, live action set in which the background is yes. uh, high res uh, LCD screens, so that they can actually put the actors in a physical space surrounded by the CG and stuff. It just creates this like uh, cacophony of light and reflection that mm-hmm. feels discordant in some way. And I'll say this for for Solo. I actually think, first of all, Solo is a better movie. I've said this for years. It's a better movie than you remember. It is. Like, if you go back and watch it, it's It's pretty good. Yeah, it's a fun film. I like it. I think Alden Ehrenreich is fine in it. I think mostly the issue that happened is, one, they changed directors, right? The uh, um, uh, Phil Lord and, and, and Chris Miller exited the project, Lord and Miller, and considering, listen, judging by, oh, I don't know, Into the Spider-Verse, I think we'd all uh, uh, would have loved to see what their mm-hmm. version of a solo movie would have been had they been left alone. But whatever the issues were with that, Ron Howard then took the reins. And then at a certain point during production, there was that leak. I think it was in the Hollywood Reporter that the uh, story about the production of Solo, where it was, where it was um, stated that um, 
you know, production, they weren't happy with what Aaron Reich was doing and that they had brought him in an acting coach. And I think one of the the snippets from the story is like hiring a coach is not unusual. Hiring one like this late in production is. I think that when that appeared, that cut mm-hmm. Alden's legs out from under mm-hmm. him. That that like negated any potential that that movie had or he yeah. had to like have a blank slate in which to uh, to uh, perform and be taken on his own merits. I think that really, really damaged the movie significantly. I, agree. I think he's fine. I don't think it's like a terrible movie by any means. Um, and I think furthermore, I think that and I would hope that. Star Wars, like Star Wars, it seems, learns a lesson every time they release a movie. You know what I mean? Whether mm-hmm. it's like what segment of the fandom to not amplify and listen to and how not to respond to uh, to criticism and et cetera. But I, I, I would hope that if they did decide to recast, they would just do things in a much more in a much more thoughtful way and also not allow stories about acting coaches to get out yeah. because, you know, it, it makes perfect sense that if you're portraying an iconic character, you know, uh, that you maybe would want some help with it. Yeah. That's also, all. I've seen Hail Caesar, which Alden is like so, which is a Coen Brothers movie, and Alden is so would that, good would in that it. it. Would that it were so, would that it were so simple. Would I, that it would. <laughs> I quote that so much in my house. Like, he's a really brilliant actor. I truly believe, like I said, I, I I think you're absolutely right. And I also believe it's to do with, like, what stories we need to see. We have seen 20-something Han Solo. It's in the original movies. Yeah. The, when it comes to recasting, it's like, how are you going to tell? How is it going to be additive, you know? So yeah. I hope that the future of Star Wars is, one, new stories, we have so many brilliant yeah. ones with all the books and everything. Uh, two, I hope that there is a, a maybe after the success of Obi Wan, fingers crossed, there will be a, a reconsideration of that. Seeing as we'll have two recast characters in Hayden and uh, Ewan. So yeah, yeah, fingers crossed. I, I thought it was interesting, but you know what? Those Vanity Fair articles are always full of very beautiful Annie Leibovitz photography, and that's you. I still have my Force Awakens one. I, I they're always a nice. A nice little distraction. Up next, uh, Disney Plus has released a, a watch list for Kenobi. Um, Shocking. Which, uh, you know, again, that the Obi-Wan Kenobi is coming out Friday, May 27th, which is the same exact day that this uh, episode is coming out, so we haven't seen it. Um, but the, the, the watch list is super interesting. It is as follows. Uh, the Phantom Menace. Of course. Attack of the Clones. The Clone Wars movie, uh, parentheses, the lowest rated Star Wars property on Rotten Tomatoes uh, at 18% 18%. of all time. (laughs) Uh, The Clone Wars season two, episodes 12 to 16. The Clone Wars season four, episodes 15 to 18. The Clone Wars season five, episodes 14 to 16. Revenge of the Sith. And then, of course, Obi-Wan Kenobi, um, super interesting list, uh, very Mandalore heavy, your thoughts? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we were both, so we we thought that we would try and do some kind of primer, right? And and this definitely wouldn't have been 
the stuff that I would have yeah, selected. Would not, have not because it's bad. I mean, these are really good. I was re-watching this list before the podcast, but it's really dense, bureaucratic, Attack of the Clones style prequels like it's obi-wan and mandalore and and the it's a lot of politics of the galaxy yeah. and i found that really interesting and there is a very heavy focus on satine who yeah. in the show is established as obi-wan's kind of like star-crossed one true love and in canon is is the only person um that he's kind of had that those feelings for they and absolutely, was, yeah. they absolutely fucked at some point. Absolutely, in time. no question. One hundred million show and billion love. percent. But yes, that happened. Yeah, like it's obvious. And yeah, I found it really interesting. My my gut feeling says, watch these episodes. I mean, honestly, if I know it's you're going to be listening to this when the episode is out. But if you have not watched Clone Wars and you have not watched Rebels, they are so worthwhile and they are so fun. And Clone Wars, especially is so key to why Obi-Wan even exists because it built out the character so much and it built out his relationship with Anakin and that kind of passion that fans have for that pairing, whether it's as a ship or whether it's as a friendship. Um, Really, a lot of it comes from this show. So I thought these were really interesting choices. You should definitely watch them because how rare is it that Disney... Usually, this is stuff that we cobble together ourselves whether it's easter eggs or theories yeah. or watch lists it's very yeah. rare for disney or any of these places to put out a list and say this is what you need to know so i think it's really interesting and i think that from watching them again today these are going to be more like touch points and references that may shape where we meet obi-wan in I, the show here's what i was surprised by um obviously like clone wars went on for Eight seasons, you know, twenty plus episodes per season. They could have picked any arc of Obi Wan stuff, and they picked the stuff specifically dealing, for the most part, with his relationship with the uh, the Duchess Satine, the uh, peacenik leader of Mandalore. Uh, in their post kind of like warrior days, who is trying to maintain this this uh, neutrality for the planet, and was resisted the whole way by uh, the terrorist organization Death Watch. Um, and their supporters in the separatist movement, most most notably Count Dooku. And I was surprised, for one, that there wasn't, like, no uh, Darth Maul death scene from Rebels. No Maul. Like, Maul is such, was, like, uh, such a foil for Obi-Wan. And, the, and to not get a lot of that, I think it tells us a lot. I think it makes sense when you think about it that we already have the Mandalorian show. And so... Mm-hmm. I did expect to see a little bit more Maul content. We do see Maul uh, towards the end of that uh, that Mandalore arc uh, where R.I.P. Spoiler, he does kill the Duchess Teen. But I expected to see more of him. I expected to see I, – I was kind of a little surprised that we didn't see Rebel Season 3, Episode 20-something where uh, – again, spoiler once again, Obi-Wan Kenobi kills Darth Maul. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you know, it has been – through the Mandalorian show, we came to understand that uh, the covert was essentially like an offshoot of Death Watch. Like it was uh, the, the fanatics of Death Watch that like helped preserve like Mandalorian culture. So like um, getting – a story from the other side of that, from the more from the from the forces that were trying to pull Mandalore into a more peaceful mode mm-hmm. of of existence is, I think, really interesting. I think clearly 
this show, a big emotional generator of this show is going to be Obi-Wan still carrying a flame for the Duchess Satine. Mm-hmm. The whole Mandalorian aspect of it, I think, is is going to be really uh, is going to be really interesting. That's the part of it that that really stood out to me. Yeah, I kind of somehow, I guess, because of the the massive relevance of the prequels and the kind of cultural space that they hold, both as the way that they were responded to when they came out and and how they're kind of revered now and the whole generation who grew up with them, I sort of hadn't really even comprehended in my mind that this, like every other live-action Star Wars show so far, would be built around or so heavily connected to The Mandalorian. And this is the first thing that has given me that realization of like, oh, I don't think this is going to be, they keep saying it's the most cinematic, it's the most like a movie, it's the least serialized. The Mandalorian, we've always shouted out, Book of Boba Fett, same thing. They do that great serialized storytelling, the kind of storytelling that influenced Star Wars and George Lucas. But this is the cinematic one. And and I thought that would mean that it would maybe be separate and it was going to be really focused on this Obi-Wan's journey, Obi-Wan as a solo kind of, you know, lost soul, like keeping an eye on Luke, dealing with his past. But I think it's actually going to be way more connected to the Mandalorian and kind of those we've met that, like you said, we've essentially met the Death Watch. Like these are not coincidences that these are here. And I think you're really right. I also think that something that is going to be really key in the Obi-Wan and Anakin relationship, whatever that looks like in this series is going to be that fact that Obi-Wan was in love with Satine and he was the one who told Anakin, you can't do this, it's going to end everything, Jedis can't love. I think that that, after seeing this list, I think that is going to be an extra layer of complexity. I like that a lot. And anguish between them. I I think that that's a great great point, that Obi-Wan's own guilt Mm -hmm. about Mm -hmm. selling this line about uh, you know, uh, remaining detached and, uh, you know, the, the Jedi way of like pushing uh, all emotion and attachment aside uh, that he's and rightfully so would probably feel pretty guilty about saying that mm-hmm. uh, to Anakin, considering that he's was carrying this torch for Satine for his whole life. And then, you know, like, that's a great part of, uh, I think Mm -hmm. it's uh, episodes 12 and 16 from season two, which is here on this list, is that moment where I think they're in, they're on, I believe it's when they're transporting Satine back to Coruscant because she's going to make the peace speech, right? And they're in the elevator. And then it's it's so funny whenever Satine and Obi-Wan are together because they're just like bickering like old lovers. They truly are like, <laughs> well, look at you. You're you're uh, you you preach peace, but you're actually a warrior. You're in, you're involved in war. Yeah, well, I'm trying to stop the war. And then just like doing this back and forth and back and forth. And then Anakin, like having watched this, realizes like, oh, my God. Hold on a second. You're in love with Satine, aren't you? It's a great moment. Um, I, and I think that that's a great pull. Like, that would make a lot of sense. If if I'm Obi-Wan, I would feel terrible about that. That mm-hmm. here I am preaching this thing that I can't even hold myself up to. And And I think something that makes the Clone Wars so effective and the thing that definitely convinced me really to get into it was catching, like, a random episode that really dealt with this stuff is, like, the... Getting to learn that interior motivations and emotional strife 
behind Anakin's existence and kind of yeah. how he could turn to the dark side and this notion of of destiny and free will is so deep. Like there are episodes, there's episodes yeah. of the Clone Wars where you're like, this is a kid's show. And there's episodes when you watch it and you're just like, I'm going to die. Like this it's, is heartbreaking. It is tremendously sad how everyone in Anakin's life, mm -hmm. essentially, fails him at every turn. Yep. The Jedi fail him at every turn. Obi-Wan, despite Obi-Wan's like best intentions and and uh and uh and real wisdom, um absolutely fails Anakin at every turn. Yep. They completely miss uh the manipulation by Palpatine. They miss like everything. And then the whole time, like here here again is is Obi-Wan deeply in love uh with this um, really remarkable woman who is mm -hmm. uh, risking her life every day to try and bring her people out of its warlike past. Um, and here he is, like, completely obviously to anyone who is looking at them in love with her. And yet he's telling his Padawan, hey, yeah, you, uh, we got to detach. You can't. Uh, yeah. Do you like that? You know, you yeah. can't you can't have it in your life. You need to, you need to push it away. P.S. Uh, I'm uh, I'm. Uh, you know, part of the security detail for my for my lifelong love. I'm traveling with her back to course. It's Does like, that sound familiar know, to you, Anakin? Does that is that yeah. something you can relate to? Yeah, as soon as we arrived, uh, you know, on Mandalore, we went uh, to uh, on a walk through the park together. Uh, P.S. You have to detach from everything. It's like, come on, man. Yeah, I mean, I always like this is not on their list, right? But I I think about this episode so much, and I feel like if they can bring even a tiniest bit of the gravitas and like heartbreak it's uh the the 17th episode of the third season um which is called ghosts of mortis and mm. it's where the jedi's like stranded on mortis and anakin like sees his future as darth vader and he is like broken by it and the it's the it's the son and the father and and um and then he essentially has his memory wiped and he has to like go back to living not knowing. And I, I think about that all the time. And that was the episode where I was like, I randomly caught it on TV and I was like, okay, I need to watch this show. This is like gut punch TV, especially if you care about these characters. Yeah. And I really hope with the Clone Wars being something that they're pointing people towards, I just really hope that they're going to be able to bring that kind of emotional heft to this show because that's one of the great things about longer format storytelling and TV is you can kind of have these 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 explorations of these characters who are often just very archetypal like you know Darth Vader yeah and 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 Anakin you know we didn't get we got to know a little bit about him in in the prequels but not so much a lot of what people love comes from these expanded shows from the books from you know the the kind of fan love that keeps these characters alive. Even Dave Filoni, he's a fan. You know, that's I, that's how this stuff gets made. So I pitched this in pre-pro. Um, and now I'm going to say it here with the caveat knowing that this will never happen. <laughs> I think that they should reboot the prequels. I think that they should do them I again. I love this idea. I think they should do them again. Uh, you take all the emotional depth explored in Clone Wars uh, and Rebels, you take all those lessons learned and all the extra Star Wars stuff that has come out in the intervening years that adds to the richness of the characters of Anakin and Obi-Wan and even uh, Yoda and everybody else and Palpatine. 
uh, you take out all the racist stuff, right? All the anti-Semitism is gone. Uh, all the anti-Semitism, all the fucking trade federation shit, all that stuff. You throw you do the Jar Jar Binks, awfulness. You keep him as a character if you want, but like, but like, but throw out the kind of like the yeah. really terrible racist stuff, right? You have massive advances in CGI technology that have taken place in the in the intervening uh, three decades, right? And and you. And you reboot them. You do them again. I think it would, like, listen, it won't happen. But it would be fucking great. Like, they would be, I think you could make them legitimately great. They are, of course, these prequels are beloved because for a lot of people. That was their Star that's Wars. Their, that was their Star Wars, right? And and they're beloved in a very interesting way. And certainly the Clone Wars helped with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you can make them, like, legitimately, heartbreakingly, like a real Star Wars space tragedy. That's great storytelling. Like, I think it could really be great if they did it. If you'd have told most people 10 years ago, maybe five years ago, probably 10 years ago, that they were going to be making an Obi-Wan Anakin show with Hayden and Ewan McGregor, most people wouldn't have believed you. We are They'd be like, new, this is a joke. They'd they be would like, say, this, this is, yeah, is, this is untrue. This is right. not going to happen. So I don't think we're that far off. I think that these stories and this era is is very ripe for the picking. And we know how much familiarity breeds like corporate excitement when it comes to IP. Yeah. So I, I, I don't think we're that far off. I mean, I, I love this era. I think it's like, it's almost like George Lucas at his most... On like his least reined in, like he was just allowed <laughs> yeah, to do yeah. whatever he wanted, and in some places that was really bad, like the aforementioned racism and anti-Semitism that we want to see gone. But like, I I will never stop respecting the man for just like being like, I love bureaucracy. Like, yeah, I was that's what get I'm, I'm space bureaucracy. I and I'm honestly, doing, yeah, you know what that is. Has become a very big part of a lot of what it's we know in prestige TV as well. Think about hey, Game of Thrones. There's a lot of bureaucracy in Game of I Thrones. I gotta say, like, the death of democracy, whether in space, <laughs> uh, you know, like many, 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 many uh, millennia ago, or or in a fantasy universe, is pretty germane right now. So I would love to see it happen. I think it would be a. It, I think it would be so fun if they do it again. Uh, okay, up next, the airlock. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory-smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. All aboard the goat boat, folks. 
get aboard. Tooth Nasher is here. Tooth Grinder is here. And today we will be diving into the Thor Love and Thunder trailer, priming you for what to expect as we enter, uh, as we fly deeper into cosmic Marvel territory, mm-hmm. cosmic uh, god territory. Uh, and, and of course, we'll be talking about some of those uh, cosmic characters that are uh, that are referenced in the trailer. Um, and plus, since we're uh, we're in a fantastic mood, uh, seeing as we are almost all the way back from our tussle with the novel coronavirus, COVID-19, uh, Rosie and I are going to give you uh, our reactions on the first two episodes of Miss Marvel in a completely non-spoiler fashion. First, Love and Thunder, the trailer. Kids... Get the popcorn now. Let me tell you the story of the space viking, Thor Odinson. He was no ordinary man. He was a god. After saving planet Earth for the 500th time, Thor set off on a new journey. When he got in shape, he went from dad bod to god bod. And after all that, he reclaimed his title as the one and only Thor. Oh, spoke too soon. Jane? Okay. So, first off, what did you think of the trailer before we dive into the kind of uh, some of the details of the stuff that we that we see and we're therein? I love this trailer. I I'm like I'm like a Thor Ragnarok superstan. That to me As is a, like yes. one of the best recontextualizing of a character ever. One of the best outrageous third sequel in a franchise that just somehow like completely reinvigorates the character i and i i love how much this kind of leans into the van art of it all like it's you know the the dulcet tones of like orchestral sweet child of mine are in the background and he's wearing (laughs) his he's wearing his strongest avenger you know, a uh, trucker cap while he's exercising with Suter's chains. Like, I I just, the vibes are immaculate. Let's go through it. So we open with Thor meditating, and you can see, like, two uh, two humanoid creatures, like, in, in, uh, in profile and shadow, like, walking up to his little uh, meditation tree. Korg is there with a bunch of uh, locals. Now, this is... Probably the planet, the movie version of the planet Indigar, which is mm. the planet that we open on in Thor, God of Thunder, Jason Aaron's uh, opening to this arc in the comics. Uh, they are a planet of uh, uh, really like almost innocent uh, aliens who worship uh, these gods, the Sky Lords. Um, and I don't know how Thor comes here. Um or why Korg is with him, but it feels like that's what this is. Yeah. This is like an opening of God of Thunder. And it seems like in a moment in the trailer that kind of comes up quite quickly, he throws his duster off on this planet yeah. and he seems to be with the Guardians and it looks like it's the same planet. So I think this yes, is going to be... I agree. They they probably arrive with the Guardians or he goes there with the Guardians and Korg meets him there. And I, it kind of, this trailer hints to me that the Guardians will be the opening part of this movie. I agree. I completely agree with you. I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be five minutes or so, yeah. and then we leave the Guardians. Something is going to happen. Thor is going to find something, uh, probably, you know, murdered gods, right? Mm-hmm. And then he's going to say, I've got to go back 
to new Asgard or go to back go back to Earth to you know check in there. I've been away yeah. for for however long. So that that scene you were talking about. So I think we're probably still on Indigar. You see the he's fighting with the Guardians. There's all sorts of like laser shots coming in. So they're not fighting Gore at this point in time. Um, I think that kind of. Who like do you a, think they're fighting? What do you who do you think they're fighting? You know, I think they're kind of like a, a heroes for hire, like cosmic Ghostbusters. I think they're like, yeah, yeah. they're less a team a team in space exactly. kind of like they're, thing. I think that they're I think that Thor's presence has probably made them a little less criminally inclined, and yep. also post the kind of carnage and then second chance of Endgame, I think that. The Guardians will kind of be going around. And I think that we will hear the term as Guardians of the Galaxy, which was kind of the comic book joke of Thor joining them. (laughs) And I think like we will probably see him and them in a montage, probably to some hair metal. And they're like kind of helping different people. Thor is get going from, as they call it in the trailer, dad bod to god bod. And he's doing his training. I think we'll see some kind of montage and it will end with them on this planet that could be Indigar and... That will kind of be where the the meat of the story actually begins. I should add that, that that during the, those opening Indigar scenes, when Thor throws off his jacket, he's wearing like the Eric Masterson yes. Thor, like he's uh, Yeah, what certainly appears to be the Thunderstrike outfit, and we mentioned him before. Eric uh, Thunderstrike uh, is. Eric Masterson, who was like an architect, a New York-based architect. He was also blonde, also very tall, also buff, yeah. who it turned out uh, was worthy of lifting Mjolnir and so wielded the power of Thor for a certain uh, part of time uh, during Roger Stern's run on the Avengers. And it's, man, every—I've mentioned this before, but every issue is really funny of the Avengers during this time because it's like there's always that thought bubble where, you know, Roger Stern needs to remind the audience, like— you know, somebody will say, oh, Thor, remember that time back on Asgard? And then there'll be this little thought bubble where uh, Thunderstrike is like, they all think I'm Thor, but really I'm Eric Masterson, a mild-mannered <laughs> architect. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, and, and, and he first debuts as like Thunderstrike in Thor 391, which was in 1988. But I will say the character design, it's Tom DeFalco and, and Ron Friends. Yeah. And Ron Friends' character design is so extremely 90s. Like, he <laughs> was so very, ahead very of 90s. the curve. And they yeah. are really leaning into that here. Like, something I think is really interesting that I don't even think we've talked about because we've talked about Thor, God of Thunder a lot. I've, I was rereading it. And we know that Gore the God Butcher is, is a big part of that. But something that's really interesting in that story that I feel like comes across in this trailer in a kind of unexpected way in that story, we learn that there's three different versions of Thor and they're all fighting Gore the God Butcher in their yeah. own timeline kind of thing, right? King, King, King Thor, regular Thor, and then the young, impetuous yeah. Thor. And something I think is really interesting is that in these trailers, we have seen different versions of Thor. Now, it's all the same timeline, but we are, seeing, well. yeah. we are seeing an Eric Masterson-style Thor. We see him in his battle armor, which we get to see yeah. his mask for for the first time. We're also seeing Jane as Thor. And I hope that we'll probably see like a Beta Ray Bill, who's a cosmic alien yeah. who held Molnir. You know, I think that there's something to this notion of even in this trailer that Korg's voiceover, you know, he says, and he got his god bod back and he was going to yeah. reclaim Molnir and his place as the one and only Thor. And then he goes, spoke too soon and Jane is there. So I think that while we're not going to see necessarily three 
Odin's sons. I think that we are, this is all about the notion of like, who is Thor and different versions of Thor, whether it's Jane, whether it's maybe Valkyrie, maybe it's uh, Beta Ray Bill, maybe it's this Eric Masterson iteration. I think the notion of many different Thors and the idea of who Thor is and what Thor is, is going to really play into this movie in a way that kind of leans into that. Now, you mentioned that Thor armor from the comics, I forget, I want to say it's like, it's like 400 or three something. Yeah, let so me that, the, the battle armor. The, the, the Thor battle armor, uh, Thor had to wear that, and it is very 90s. 378, very it's impressive. Three, Thor 378. So he had to wear that because uh, Hela had like cursed him and he, his bones became like super, super brittle. Yeah, like, baby. you know, you could just like hit him and then he'd break his bones. And so he was like always in pain. So he had to have this armor forged uh, so that he could hold that in. I, I, It'll be interesting to see if that is part of it. I my my thought is that Thor is like had to has to go to some. Yeah, I I wonder what why he forges it. But it'll be interesting right, to see. So- I I wonder if it's like he has to go to some kind of ceremony, some like special because because he has to go back to New Asgard, and there is a scene in there mm-hmm. where it seems like they're at either a museum opening or some kind of ceremony with a bunch of other humans around. And I wonder, and he's wearing the armor. Yeah. So I wonder if it's like somewhat ceremonial. So also. I think this is, this is out there, right? I don't know if it's going to be true, but one thing we know about the MCU is they love to tie something back to Tony, Tony yeah. Stark, right? They love that guy, Robert Downey Jr. MCU wouldn't exist without him. Tony Stark, MCU wouldn't exist without him. In the comics, Thor gets the idea to build the armor because Tony makes him like a cast when his arm breaks and the battle armor is kind of inspired by slash similar to and I wonder if you know Thor has the hat that says you know strongest Avenger and his (laughs) his dream was to like be taken seriously by Tony and for Tony to see him as this kind of important part of the team I wonder if part of his journey will be finding that Tony made him a prototype armor I feel like that I I would love it to be something more cosmic, but I I feel like there's there's some the fact that Tony is connected to it in the comics and the MCU loves Tony and everyone's kind of yeah. had their Tony journey. I wouldn't be surprised if at least part of it is connected back to or Tony was the one who found it. Um, and we also see we see what looks like a kind of like dead star. So I do wonder if we'll maybe go back to the to the 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 heart of the star where he forged Stormbreaker at yeah, some point could... as well. I think those okay, two so... kind of big bits. So after that kind of opening battle scene with the with the Guardians, we go to New Asgard, and it's clear New Asgard is doing great. Is doing fucking great. There's a killing course. There's three like the uh, 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 Viking cruise line cruise <laughs> ships that are docked there, and it's very clear that like New Asgard is for whatever else has been going on. Of course, the, the people have been through uh, through some real tragedies uh, in recent MCU movies, but now, uh, be, despite that being the case, they are clearly making a lot of money from yeah. tourism King right Valkyrie's now. King Valkyrie's killing it. Yeah, absolutely killing it. Uh, we get that clip that you mentioned with Thor with the Strongest Avenger, like, knockoff hat yeah. uh, training with the chains. Now, here's the thing that's out there. I, uh, you mentioned... Um, that maybe that's Surtur. Um, there's like an internet rumor going out there that it could be a watcher. Like maybe it that's looked, a that's a. It, definitely the 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 
it, I assume that because of Marvel and Easter eggs, it's probably Serta's chains. But I do think that the dead body that we see does not look like him. And it has a right. de- very different shaped face. And that would be really interesting if it was a Watcher. There's a lot of them. They, there can be a they, Watcher. We can lose a few. Yeah, we can lose it. There are many, many Watchers. Many. I wonder if, do you think that that person, because when I see like chains and torture, I think gores victims. Mm-hmm. I wonder if it's like, Thor oh. found this and uh, this Maybe is one of Gore's early him. victims. Yeah, and it yeah. either inspires him or he later realizes, oh, that's what that was. Yeah, that's, I think that Gore's been at this a while. I think you're right. I think maybe the moment that we saw in the first trailer that was so impactful that was taken from Asad Ribic's uh, art directly, yeah. maybe that's the moment when Thor starts putting it together that this isn't right. a one-off thing but in the moment that's more of like a funny he's just training and yeah there's skeletons because you know in the beginning of Ragnarok he's just chilling with a skeleton like that's just what it is and then he starts putting that together I think that's really clever and now if that is a watcher it also calls you know just the fact that we're dealing with a movie mm-hmm. where Jane Foster is Thor it calls to mind original sin which I think we've mentioned before yeah. which is that the who done it kind of uh Marvel Comics arc from five or six years back where the Watcher is murdered and no one knows who done it. Uh, I'm not going to spoil who done it, but at the <laughs> end of that arc, there is another mystery in which uh, something is whispered into Thor's ear and all of a sudden that whatever that is, that secret, it makes Thor unworthy and he can't he can't hold Mjolnir anymore. And that's mm-hmm. essentially how Jane uh, comes into uh, possession of it. So that that. Could be interesting to see. Then, okay, so uh, then uh, we have a scene of Jane uh, riding uh, either Valkyrie's horse or mm-hmm. maybe she gets one now. Maybe she has her own Valkyrie horse now, um, which I think in the comics, was it called Mr. Horse? I forget what the yeah. <laughs> Uh, and then uh, she crashes through the f- the, the, the ceiling of a, a temple on some um, some world somewhere, uh, and you have a theory on what this world could possibly be. And then in that kind of like secret chamber, we see statues of several cosmic deities. We see yes. a Watcher, probably a Watu. We could guess it's a Watu, the Watcher. We see the uh, three-headed, uh, three-faced, rather living tribunal. We see uh, the Mistress Death, who is, of course, uh, Thanos's girlfriend. Yeah, that's uh, a that's a big like to see Death in the MCU thing. That one yeah. is like that's huge for for fans of the Jim Starlin Thanos stuff, and also just like for Thanos fans in general. Death is that's the major change that they they made in the in the Infinity War saga. And then if Infinity on the end, and then either Eon or Eternity. Next to infinity. And now, yeah. if it's eternity, it makes sense because eternity and infinity are brother and sister. And if it's Eon, it kind of makes sense because Eon, you know, is a huge, a very ancient cosmic deity uh, who is directly related to uh, uh, Quasar and, yeah, and he, the he, quantum bands he and created our, the quantum our current Miss Marvel. So yeah. that would make sense. Um, to have it be Eon or Epoch, both of them have this kind of like Epoch is his daughter, and uh, and he created yeah he created the quantum bands and Epoch was the one who was took over and was able to bestow it upon the you know the protectors of the universe. So it will be interest. This is a very interesting collection 
of characters. Let's discuss these cosmic deities. So we've been dealing a lot with whether it's, uh, you know, Moon Knight, uh, mm-hmm. uh, previously, previous Thor films. Uh, we've been dealing a lot with Marvel gods, Marvel deities. Cosmic deities are like the gods of the gods, mm-hmm. kind of. So you have Uatu who's not really a god. who's just kind of like a, a cosmic peeper whose job it is. <laughs> cosmic warrior. Like, co- cosmic warrior whose job is to like watch everything that happens in their particular realm of, of the galaxy and the universe. Uh, the Living Tribunal, very interesting uh, uh, cosmic deity, uh, it basically judges Yeah, he's a judge. Everybody. He's a judgy guy. Just be judging. Yeah. Judging at ju- all times. He's judging, you know, whether something is in balance or not yeah. and, and should be part of the uh, the cosmos. That, to me, seems like a really interesting inclusion because at the end of everyone's favorite Marvel movie, Eternals, the, yes. the Arishem, you know, the Celestials, they kind of, like, warned uh, the humans, they warned the Eternals that somebody was, judgment was coming, that somebody cosmic was coming to judge Earth to see whether or not it was worth them killing a celestial and saving humanity. I think that the Living Tribunal would be a very choice option for that. There's also yep. the notion that that could be a way of introducing like a Galactus or something like that as basically a punishment or a judgment on humans. But yeah, the the fact that these characters are here is, it feels like more than an Easter egg. Yeah. Uh, Mistress Death, iconic. of course, was uh, iconic and... um if you think back to uh, uh, our original Avengers movie, mm-hmm. um, the stinger of that is the reveal that, you know, Thanos is behind all of this. And uh, Thanos's lackey says, you know, to the humans, they are powerful. But, uh, you know, to, to tempt to go against them is to court. Death. And that was the court death line yes. was our signal that, oh, shit, this is Thanos, because in the comics, everything Thanos does, he does because he has been brutally friend zoned by death <laughs> and he's just trying to impress her all the time. Yeah, he wants to impress her. And how better to impress death than to kill half of the living yes. creatures? That's the thing in, in the comics. This is not like a. Oh, it's not like a weird eco-fascist, like, that everyone will survive if we kill half of the world. No, this is no, like, oh, couldn't he just use the reality gem to make some more potatoes? No, he just did it because he loves death. He loves death. Yes. He's going to kill a lot of people, so death will be impressed. Alas, she is rarely ever impressed. Yeah, she's rarely, rarely ever. And then finally, either Eon or Eternity and Infinity um uh it it attorney infinity are the easiest they're brother and sister and they're just basically like the manifestations of different kinds of infinity right eternity is basically like everything in the universe yeah like as time, a person. space matter energy yeah. like everything and and it's really these are really like abstract they're, concepts. It's incredibly abstract. And, and don't worry if it's weird, folks, because yeah. believe me, it is weird. And when they appear in the comics, it's always like a drizzle of them. Because if you think too hard about it, you're like, this is super weird. Yeah, this is more like, this is that stuff where comics can be so fantastical and where a lot of this stuff is not really codified in like canon or anything. It's more just like, 
these are weird things that these creators sprinkled in to make writing these comics every single week more exciting for them, more strange, more experimental. And so a lot of times when we're talking about this stuff, we're talking about characters who have appeared in a few things or whose who's canon kind of stretches and changes and is absolutely abstract. And uh, yeah, so, and in the comics, like Infinity is really interesting. Google them because this is an or this is an audio yeah, yeah. experience but infinity has like an outrageously sick character design and Absolutely. it's really weird but um in some versions like the the quantum bands actually like tap into infinity so there's kind of all these different it feels like it's not a coincidence that this trailer has this really big cinematic shot of these cosmic entities which is i believe what they in the comics they usually call them cosmic beings but i think that the collector at some point calls them cosmic entities in the mcu so it's kind of the infinity gems versus infinity stones so i don't think it's a i don't think it's a coincidence that we're seeing these cosmic entities in a movie that is essentially going to come out a month after miss marvel um debuts i agree with you and we know that just from the trailers and what we've seen so far of the powers that we've discussed before, that she has these kind of gauntlets that seem like they could be related to or inspired by the quantum bands. And and in the trailer, she even say, say how does it feel? And she says, cosmic. So, yeah, you know, this notion big, yep, of the Marvel cosmic is, is becoming more and more interesting. The question is, in the context of seeing this in the Thor trailer and knowing that Gore the God Butcher, who we meet for the first time in this trailer and is terrifying... Yeah. Um, are these are the statues of these deities because they're dead? Has Gore killed them? Are these are these deities who existed so long ago that other gods now worship them? Like that's what I find really interesting. Well, I found myself wondering like where this place that mm-hmm. Jane finds herself is, uh, um, because you know. Now, you had texted us that maybe it's Cronux, which is this, like, hidden realm beyond space, beyond time that is, like, uh, the—it's basically, like, the temple of the origin of, like, the universe. And it's Uh, in Thor, God of Thunder, our favorite, referring to Ark, Jason Aaron and Asad again, Asad Ribic. And it plays a major part in that. But that would be like, if th- if that's what this is, it would be, it would be an expansion and different version. Because in there, the generic kind of time gods live yeah. there and they get killed by Gore. And then he uses their blood to travel to a different timeline to build this weapon, the God Bomb, the, right? The God, the God Bomb! bomb. So, so in that version... I, yeah. I I think if this was the MCU adapting that, and maybe that's why Jane is there, then it could be something along the lines of um, kind of like a situation where it's like the time gods maybe worshipped the cosmic deities, and that's why they're there. I like that. You know, yeah, something like good. that. Yeah, so, yeah. so we're like Tyke's done a great job of establishing through production design the existence of characters that he obviously really cares about so like in thor ragnarok um on the planet where that was essentially like the the kind of world war hulk like planet yeah. like the um sakar on that planet there was this huge kind of totem and one of the faces that was 
translated there that had been like kind of sculpted was Beta Ray Bill. So yeah. in that way, I, I really like the notion that you can kind of introduce these characters into existence by being like other people worship them. And then whether or not we get to truly explore who they are. I mean, I think that death being here is a big deal because I am truly a believer that they're going to resurrect Thanos. And if they do it, death being a part of it, death resurrecting him potentially, I think it just makes so much sense, especially with Adam Warlock about to appear. This is going to be the most cosmic phase of the MCU. I, I, I agree with you on that. Okay, so then we get uh, some battle scene on the streets of uh, New Asgard. Uh, we get to see um, Jane and Thor back together. Very interesting note here. He's like, she's like, how long's it been? And clearly, like, Thor has been out in space, like, doing stuff for, for years. Uh, she's like, it's, oh, it's been, like, something like three years. And he's like, no, it's been eight and a half. Five-year difference suggesting Jane, Jane was blipped, right? Right. She had that to, has right? to be. That's, like, that's the only be. way it makes sense, yeah. right? Okay, so uh, I agree with that. Um, then we get the scene of uh, what is either Olympus or like Omnipotent City from, from yeah. Jason Aaron's run on Thor. Omnipotent City is this like uh, meeting place in the cosmos where like all the gods like come and hang out and they talk about stuff that's yeah. happening. And we do see a bit later on uh, in the final like kind of stinger, which has like a comedic a great comedic moment that we'll get to. We do see there that it looks like there are seats for multiple different gods, whether or not so that, that's different right. gods from different spaces, or if it's just the pantheon of Greek gods. It's it's interesting to kind of know. I think you could really be onto something there. Yeah. Um, now, this is a staple of Thor comics throughout the years, this like council of godheads when mm -hmm. all the different gods from all the different uh, world cultures get together, talk about shit. I would imagine if there is like a mad uh, uh, alien butcher running around with a <laughs> necro sword killing gods all through the timeline that the gods would need to get together and talk it out. So that's probably what that is. Yeah. You know, I actually, you know what I think as well? Like, so we kind of see that the Greek, the Zeus, at least in this is a kind of a comedic figure, which is very realistic to the mythology um but also like i want we saw a empire magazine i believe released an image of jane foster valkyrie and uh, a woman who looked like bast sitting mm -hmm. in front yes i wonder if they go to the gods to the infinite embassy to the omnipotent space and and, and in the hopes of finding that serious council and i wonder if they're too Bacchanal and too kind of like la lax like and they want to drink and right? unserious. Yeah, yeah. And I wonder if we see, I, I, my gut says Zeus is not long for this world. I think oh. that there is going to be a god massacre. And I wonder if Jane and Valkyrie and Bast have to create their own more serious, we're going to do something about it version. Yeah, I think however they arrive there on the, uh, uh, you know, on the goat boat, it's, not exactly planned because they crash through like mm -hmm. the ceiling of it. Yeah, I think you're right. Zeus is at the end fight where we see Valkyrie, um, Jane, and Thor fighting Gore. Valkyrie is like wielding yeah. what look like Zeus's lightning, uh, his lightning spear and his like like lightning weaponry. 
the the only thing that I can draw from that is Zeus is dead. Zeus is gone because he's. uh, I can't imagine Zeus being the type of guy who'd be like, "Yeah, go ahead, take my spear." Uh, Yeah, have fun with that. Don't worry about Um, it. Oh yeah, so something that we haven't really talked about, but like we do get is so in all the the trailers and the promo images, we'd said like. You kept bringing up, this is a, a villain who doesn't appear in the trailers, but this is a very gore-heavy trailer. Yes. So yes, what did you think when you saw him? I loved it. I yeah. loved the design. Um, I loved that you could see his face. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe that is like from the early days of gore and that he evolves into this more like demonic thing. But I thought... It was really chilling. We got a view of the Necrosword, yep. which was amazing. For those of you uh, who maybe haven't heard us talk about this before, so the Necrosword is, is Gore's weapon. It is, in Marvel canon, like the original symbiote. Like Venom yep. came from this. Like this is the thing that created Venom, that created uh, the creatures that would go on to become Carnage, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and... I thought I thought he looked super scary. And cool. He looks so scary and like yeah. really gross. Yeah, I think really like, gross, which I like. Something that people often say about Marvel movies and have said pretty much since the beginning is it, it's hard to make like a great Marvel villain. And obviously, yeah. I think Thanos is the is the contradiction to that that, big, that kind of proves the rule. Yeah. Like I think people, but generally, you know, like. I like the cartooniness of a lot of the villains, like Ultron, and I, yeah. I even like Iron Man too. I love, <laughs> I, you know, the, those are. I, I, I'm not a, a whiplash hater, but like this is a very different vibe. Like, and Christian Bale is playing it Shakespearean. Like yeah, they have a tell. shot of him looking at the camera, saying like, "All gods must die," and it's like chilling and something that i think is really cool that i can't i cannot wait to see how this translates it feels so comic booky is it looks like whenever gore kills a planet or or he has a space that is entirely grayscale and everything there is black and white and that just looks so cool and depending on when we see him fighting other people sometimes they are also black and white or sometimes they yeah. are in color and he is in black and white I'm I'm really excited to see how that it how that kind of comes across. And also something and I know, I'm sorry, it's always going back to the Eternals, but yeah. <laughs> I did I I'm sorry, it has to happen. I right? love that. Crazy, I, I love, love you. This movie love came it. back. I'm sorry, it is in the MCU guys. I'm sorry. It's imp- it, it, it is likely that it could play a part. But something that I was when I was reading up on All Black the Necrosword, the first symbiote. That was actually created by Null, another character that we've talked about, who's like been very big in Marvel in the last couple yes. of years. But they tempered the sword using like the 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 power that came off of a dying celestial. Right. So I just think that there is a version where the celest the death of the celestial at the end of Eternals could have been how Gore suddenly has that. this sword. You know, I have a, I have a similar theory. I love to hear Kind it. of, sort of. Uh, so at the end of this trailer, we see this battle taking place on this like dead, desolate moon, right? That's either Cronux or some other place where, uh, you know, in, in the comics, as you mentioned, like Gore goes and, and enslaves a bunch of gods to build this god bomb, which he's then going to set off and it's going to kill all the gods. We see in the midst of this fight, like Gore 
shove the the necrosaur mm-hmm. down into the into the surface of this moon. I think the moon could be the god bomb. I oh, think it's the moon. That is so sick. I think I, the, I think it's. I, listen, this feels like another thing where I am like probably going to be wrong, but I do wonder if the. I think the moon could be the god bomb. I think I, it's that. I love that because if you think about it as well, just on like a basic scientific level, and the number one way to decimate like a solar system and specifically a yeah. planet is to fuck with the moon, let alone if you actually make it into a legitimate weapon. That also could be really interesting because um, I think Awatu lives on the moon or a yeah. moon at some point. So maybe there is something there connected to like the death of a watcher and the moon. I mean, this is just so exciting. Like, how often do we get a trailer that has this much stuff that you can just break oh, it down? Like, in. it's it's so fun. And that's before, like, there's so much action in this trailer and so many fun nods and, and moments that you don't even really, like, we haven't even really touched on just how good the character beats are. Like, Thor yeah. seeing Jane and also, like, it could be a misdirect, but the the trailer and one of the last things that we see in the trailer is um, Gore says, you know, he's looking really gross and he's like got black stuff like coming out <laughs> of his mouth and he's like, oh, you're not like the other gods I've killed. You know, you have something worth fighting for. And we see what looks like Jane and Thor connecting like pinky yeah, fingers. Oh, man, that, that actually like uh, that... That I felt a swell in my heart when I saw that. I'm like, yes! I would love to see this have a, a romantic element to it or have that kind of at least the notion of like love being this really important part. In a lot of com- comics, you know, love does save the day. Like that's a big yeah. part of Young Avengers. Like that can happen. And I would, Tyka's the kind of person who I think, especially after watching like Our Flag Means Death and, and, I think that he's the kind of person who isn't afraid to bring that element to these stories. And and I think that Jane and Thor is a pairing that a, a lot of Marvel fans have really loved for a really long time. So it could be cool to see it go in that direction. But who knows? Maybe they're just holding fingers because they're friends and Jane and Valkyrie will be gay. Or maybe it'll be a throuple. Who knows? Tyke is a wild man. He is a I wild man. I believe in him. I, I got to say, I'm a little... I don't want to put this bad juju out there, but I'm a little <laughs> be bad I'm a juju. Li- I, and there's going to be there's going to be a lot of gods that die. I'm a little worried about Valkyrie surviving this movie, a tiny bit. I I feel your fear, and you know what I have to say. I made shock horror before the Eternals came out. I made a ranking of the Eternals of who was going to survive, right? And I was mostly absolutely wrong. And I that movie changed my the amount of trust that I put into these movies to keep characters alive, especially queer characters and people of color. So I'm hoping that Valkyrie does survive because she's one of my all-time fave characters. I was same, actually going to wear my Valkyrie t-shirt, but it's like a kid's same. t-shirt and it doesn't really fit me. It's really <laughs> uncomfortable. I need to turn it into like a cool jacket patch. They made the romance between Thor and Jane seem so cute here that I am worried that that will be the tragic romance because I, of uh, the nature of how... Jane yeah. gets her powers in the comics and the, yeah. the cancer storyline. I, which... I didn't want to bring that into it, but I agree with you that part <laughs> of it is also us. troubling. <laughs> also, the fact that she's riding the Valkyrie mm-hmm. horse, which shouldn't happen if it is Valkyrie's horse. So that, there's a lot of stuff there yeah. that I'm concerned about. I hope it's fine. <laughs> I want them all to survive. Don't hurt I, yeah. my children, my good yeah. gay Marvel children. I'm sorry. I, I agree. <laughs> 
Okay, let's go quickly to uh, uh, we've now we we got screeners for uh, the first two episodes of Miss Marvel, uh, and we've watched them. And now we're going to give our non-spoiler, 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 zero spoilers, just vibe, gut Vibes. check, emotional reaction to this. Rosie, you go first. I thought this show was so lovely. Yeah. It reinvigorated my excitement in kind of new Marvel stuff. I thought the production and set design was spectacular. The cast is super funny. And I loved the element of Kamala's fan art that they built in and the way they use it. I think it is, they've teased it in the trailers, but the way they use it in the show is so engaging and it feels like a a love letter to comics and how this stuff is, even this stuff only exists because artists made beautiful artwork in comic books and then it could be adapted. So having a kind of artist at the center of this show. I love that too. Oh, it was, I, I just thought it was so lovely and I'm I'm really excited to see. It feels very different. I know people say that about every Marvel show, but this to me feels decidedly different it, and I'll be very interested to see how it lands. I love that too. I thought that creativity in the service, as you said, of fleshing out Kamala's character is so fun and great. There's a tremendous energy here that feels Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, youthful in a way that is, of course, natural to the character. And I thought that it just felt like, uh, I mean, this is going to sound hokey, but this is like, I think this is going to be my favorite Disney plus Marvel show. And, and it just made me feel like, man, this is what I love about this. This energy right here is what I love about comics and comic book stuff. That's how I felt about it. You know, because like, uh, you know, I never respond to the like, MCU, DC comics, movies are for babies, like discourse mm-hmm. that's out there like a lot, particularly from like the uh, the cinephile like corners of of the Internet. But th- this show made me uh, reconnect in it, you know, like rediscover, find again that feeling that I have when yeah. I really like I'm into a comic that I like, you know, like I think that I think that. Running from the fact that like comics are very often something you find like as a youth, as a youth, you know, as a young person um, and the fact that like many people are still into it, despite the fact that they've grown into adulthood. I think like running from that part of it or framing it as like a negative to me is actually like really shitty because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as I think I've said, I've, I've said numerous times, like in different ways, like I feel like the lessons the, the reason that people find comics often is like because they feel like outside, like they are outside of uh, their the the people they're growing up around, mm-hmm. the neighborhood they're growing up around. They and the, and they're looking for a place in the world uh, that comics gives them that. And I also feel like you know a lot of the the questions that young people confront often through comics, but in just in their lives, like. Uh, do people love me? Do I have mm-hmm. friends? Like, am I good? Like, it, this show is going to be a lot about Kamala discovering if she's good at anything and wondering, mm-hmm. like, am I good at it? Is there anything I'm good at? Like, that is such an important question that I think people carry with them throughout their entire life. Yeah. Um, and this show, like, dives right into 
those really existential questions that people have when they're young Mm -hmm. that they continue to have and don't admit throughout their entire life. And that's what I loved about it. It was only two episodes, but it just had a tremendous energy and heart that I loved. And like the the visual style is so appealing. It's so appealing. And like the jewel tones, like everything about it. The palette is, the, the tone is in between like, it feels very authentically young and cute, but also absolutely stylized and yeah. and cool. And I just want to live in that world. And I think something that's really nice about this, I feel like that will also really appeal to people who loved Hawkeye, even though I have to say it feels so different, which I, I thought that would be the one it's most similar in tone to. But something I think people will really love is in the same way that Kate is a fan of of the heroes and of Hawkeye, Kamala is even more of a fan of all different kinds of heroes. And so if you grew up with the MCU and if you love the MCU, even if you if you love the comics, amazing. But if you are an MCU fan, this is definitely a show that's going to speak to you on that level. And I, I think that's really lovely. I think there's a lot of love for the comics in there too. Yeah, and that really speaks is. to me. But I, I love the notion that people who love the MCU will be able to watch this and have that as like a, a, a relatable part of it. There's, I, I'm so excited to talk about this show properly when it comes out because there's just so much stuff our listeners are going to love. Well, that's it for our show today. A uh, big thank you to the number one co-host, Rosie Knight. Rosie, it was so great to do the show with you. What do you have to plug? Give us the plugs. What do you plug in? What do you got? I okay, so I you can find me uh, writing articles at Nerdist, IGN, Polygon, all those good places. I am on Instagram, Rosie Marks. That's my only social media, M A R X. And this week, I'm just gonna plug. It's been a tough week. I love that we've been able to talk about all this amazing stuff. So I'm just gonna plug um, the amazing uh, notion and feeling and action of doing mutual aid. I would say, like I live we. The area I live in, in LA County, there is so many brilliant mutual aid organizations of neighbors who do brilliant things like filling up community fridges. Yeah, and LA, who, LA community fridges yeah, is one of the best uh, ho- one of those. Homey made meals where you can essentially like cook meals and then you can either drop them off to somebody to take out to your homeless uh, neighbors or you can drop them off yourself. And I follow some brilliant people on Instagram who, if you follow me on there, you'll be able to see them who do park lunches for um, unhoused people in LA. And no matter where you live, whatever city, if you just search mutual aid, if you search on Instagram, you will find someone who is doing this work and you can either Venmo them if you don't have the energy or the scope or the time to go out, or you can get involved. Our amazing friend and co-host Sig does mutual aid, posts about it on his Instagram. So it's another great resource. And I just think in these times when stuff is really tough, yes. it feels like you can't do anything, but actually doing something really small and making a difference to like one person or one or two people in your community is a really great way of making a much bigger difference than you realize. So that's like, that's something that's gotten me through the hard times. And I feel really lucky that there's so many amazing people doing that. And I'm sure that no matter where you live, there will be people in your area who are doing that, who need support, who would love to have you involved. Well said. 
folks. For everything uh, that we do here, check out our videos on Uncultured on the Uncultured YouTube channel. Of course, if you want to uh, get a better idea of the things that we talk about, the references we make, etc., check the show notes in our listener's guide to X-Ray Vision where we provide more details on those things. Don't forget to email us at xrayatcrooked.com to just uh, tell us things that we should be watching, to give us nerd out pitches, to just talk to us about whatever uh, thoughts you have, concerns you have, things you like, things you didn't like, etc. We love hearing from you. Don't forget, catch the next episode on June 3rd, and we'll see you next time. And oh yeah, one more thing. Five-star ratings. We want the five stars. Five stars. If you count as many stars as you want to give us on your hand, and there's a finger left on the one hand, or two fingers left, God forbid, <gasps> that's not enough. It's got to be the whole hand worth of stars needs to be filled up in the five-star ratings. We love them, folks. X-Ray Vision is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by Chris Lord and Saul Rubin. The show is executive produced by myself and Sandy Gerard. Our editing and sound design is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Dylan Villanueva and Matt DeGroot provide video production support. Alex Relaford handles social media. Thank you, Brian Vasquez, for our theme music. See you next time. Bye-bye. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.